The following message is by Pastor Jason Polly. More information from Harmony Bible Church is available at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. So we've been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And last week, uh, Matt was able to speak or to bring uh, 1 Corinthians 6 to you. And I believe he spoke on verses 1 through 11. We're going to uh, kind of backtrack a little bit and cover verses 9 through 11 of chapter 6 today, but just a little bit of background on the book of Corinthians. As we've been kind of working through, we've seen that Paul points to the gospel again and again and again in the book of Corinthians. He wants the Corinthian believers to understand the gospel. And Corinth was a wealthy city, a city known for its uh, trading, known for its wealth, known for its licentiousness, really. A city that was known for sex, a city that was known for its worldly attitudes. And Paul came, he, he preached the gospel, the church was started, and Paul personally pastored this church for 18 months, a year and a half, before having Apollos become their pastor. And there's some division that's happening in the church in Corinth. They've been given every opportunity to grow, but they're struggling in their growth and that they've developed a, a bit of worldliness and a bit of conflict within the church. And Paul wants to address these conflicts, and he does so by uh, building on the gospel again and again and again and applying the gospel to different situations that they are going through. Last week, namely that being one of lawsuits within the church, and this week he uh, kind of steps back and draws this distinction between unbelievers and believers and the differences between the two. So without further ado, let's look at our text this morning, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9-11. through 11. If you'll stand for the reading of God's Word. Paul writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, or excuse me, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So jumping right in, the first point in your sermon outline is the way of the unregenerate. The way of the unregenerate. And unregenerate may seem like a a big word, but it simply means not renewed or not reborn. Something that has not been made new. As in John uh, three, three. Jesus said, unless a, more, a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That a man must be made new, that he is born dead in his trespasses and sins, and that he cannot see the kingdom of God because he is dead and he needs to be born again. And Nicodemus said, how can a man be born again? Must he enter his mother's womb a second time? And Jesus clearly says, clearly you don't get it. A man must be born spiritually. He's spiritually dead and he must spiritually be reborn. And Paul is building on this. And Paul, in verse 9 of our text, he begins by asking for the third time in chapter 6, do you not know? For the third time he says, do you not know? This time, specifically asking the question, 
Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? In doing so, he's drawing a line of distinction between believers and unbelievers. Between the godly and the ungodly. The term unrighteous means violator of the law. So when he says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, he's saying the violator of the law, sometimes translated wicked or wrongdoer, will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a pretty bold statement that he makes here. The wicked, those who violate the law of God, will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, they won't see heaven. They will not be rescued from the wrath that is to come. And you know, this message is not popular today. We live in a world that promotes the idea that all roads lead to heaven. That it doesn't matter what you believe or how you live. We live in a world that says there can't possibly be only one way. In spite of the fact that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man, no man comes to the Father but through me. Just this past week, I watched a a televangelist, a television evangelist, dodge the question whether Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. And the funny thing is, the, the news host actually knew to ask this televangelist that question. This TV personality who's not a believer understood what Jesus claimed and said, do you believe this? And the televangelist said, well, I don't know people's hearts, and I'm not in a position of God, and I... Ah, and dodge left and dodge right. You see, we live in a world that says, broad is the path that leads to heaven. Whereas Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Scripture says, broad is the path that leads to destruction, a place called hell. And narrow is the path that leads to eternal life. We like to quote that, but think about that, narrow. Right? And I believe narrow means narrow. We read statistics and we read that most Americans pray. Many Americans go to church. It seems like narrow means narrow and broad means broad. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 25. He says, starting at verse 31, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne And all the nations will be gathered before Him. And He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then in verse 41, He says, Then He will also say to those on His left, Depart from Me, accursed ones into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. See, it may not be popular to talk about hell, but the Scripture speaks about a place called hell. Eternal separation from God. Eternal torment. Eternal fire. A place that has been prepared for the devil and his angels and a place that the ungodly, this text says will go to. So we need to be serious about looking at what this text says. Whether it's popular or not. Apparently the church in Corinth, instead of positively influencing the culture in which they were living in, 
They let themselves be negatively influenced by their environment. So instead of going and influencing the culture, they were being influenced by the culture. Instead of being salt and light in their community, they were letting darkness and corruption creep into the church. And with the adoption of worldly behavior, the adoption of poor theology followed. In other words, as they began to act like the world around them, they developed a theology to justify their behavior. You see, we all have an incredible tendency to justify our sin. Instead of letting our theology shape our practice, we let our practice shape our theology. So when we desire something that Scripture condemns or that Scripture says is wrong, we either ignore or we twist and contort Scripture to fit our desires. It comes back to what I've said so many times. I want what I want and I'm willing to sin in order to get it. I'm willing to even change my theological positions to support what I want. I put in my notes here, I put example, question mark. Right? And I tried to think of an example, because I didn't want to say an example that was going to offend somebody. And, and I've come to the conclusion that no matter what example I use, it's going to offend somebody. Because it offends me. I look at the, the way the church has changed its theology of divorce and the way it approaches divorce. And the church is not that much different than the world. I look at the way the church has changed its position on homosexuality, and the church is not that much different than the world. I look at the way the church views money. I look at the way the church views... And when I say the church, I'm including myself sometimes. That my selfish desires cause me to say, well, surely the Scriptures don't really mean that. I'll take this and this verse and maybe I'll twist this this way. Maybe not even intentionally. But instead I need to step back and say, what does the Scripture say? And let Scripture conform my practice, not my practice change Scripture. I knew a pastor one time, a man I greatly respected and admired, great mentor to many people. I didn't believe women should be, in ministry, should be uh, pastors, should be elders in the church. I believe women were mighty in ministry and could be used in mighty ways, but that the office of elder was reserved for men, which I believe is consistent with Scripture. Not that women aren't given the gift of shepherding, or that they don't have the gift to be a pastor, a shepherd, in that gifting sense. I think my wife has that gift. She is a shepherd, probably as much as I am a shepherd. However, the role of elder, the office of elder within the church is reserved for men. And I had a man who I greatly respected. Believed that until his daughter said, I'm going to school and I'm becoming a pastor. And then he changed his view. And it was very easy for me to be critical of him. But when I stepped back and realized, I'm sometimes guilty of the same thing. I want what I want. And I'm willing to change my theological views in order to support what I want. So here Paul's issuing a warning. Look back at verse 9. He says, Do not be deceived. You see, throughout this letter, he's been saying, Be truly wise. Be wise. Seek wisdom that comes from God. Pursue that wisdom, not worldly wisdom. Remember, just a few chapters ago, in chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, he said this He said, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish 
so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So he said, pursue wisdom, wisdom that comes from God. And now Paul approaches the same topic from a different angle. Now he's telling them, do not be foolish. So before it was, be wise. And now it's, don't be foolish about the things of God. Don't be so foolish as to think contrary to Scripture. Don't be so foolish as to think that the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God, for they will not. The word deceived carries the idea of wandering off the path in Greek. You see, the problem with deception is that one thinks they're on the right path when they're not. Last Sunday, I had the, Kim and I had the blessing, the pleasure of being able to attend church we used to attend. City Light in Roanoke, and it was a huge blessing to us. And uh, I'd put the address in uh, my GPS, and the, the church meets at the YMCA. They don't have a church building. It's a church plant. They meet at the YMCA every Sunday, and the YMCA is on 5th Street. Well, later in the day, we're at friend's house. We're at dinner, and uh, we know that we can get back to the hotel from 5th Street. Right? We, so we go to the church. We knew how to get to the church, and we're on 5th Street, and we know how. Here's the problem. I went the wrong direction on 5th Street. You see, I thought I was on the right path, but I was not. And there's snow and ice, and they don't know what a snowplow is, apparently, in Roanoke, Virginia. There's snow and ice, there's like this much ice on the road, and the hills are like nothing you've ever seen in your life. And I'm headed for, I'm headed for destruction. Is what I'm, I'm headed down the wrong path, headed for destruction. And the problem was that Kim actually said, I think we're going the wrong direction. And I said, we're on 5th Street! I know where I'm going. We're on 5th Street. That's the problem with deception. Is that you think you're on the right path, but you're not. So Paul's issuing a warning. He says, I want you to see that you're headed in the wrong direction. And I want you to see that before it's too late. See, he wants them to see the truth of Proverbs 14.12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, its way is death. So Paul says, do not be deceived. Don't be fooled into thinking something different. Those who practice these sins, the ungodly, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus issues the same warning. That the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says that in uh, 1 John 3.7. He says, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Implying the one who does not practice righteousness is not righteous. Just as he, Jesus, is righteous. Or God is righteous. And Paul shares this idea with the church in Ephesus too. In Ephesians 5, 5 and 6 we read, For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater, who has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And again in Galatians 6, 7-8, Paul writes, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. 
For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. You see, there's a very real danger to be avoided in saying that there's no such thing as sin. Jesus said in John, 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But John said that, excuse me. But, but also, there's great danger in deceiving ourselves into thinking that we can go on sinning because we've made some sort of profession of faith or because we've walked an aisle or we said a prayer or gone to church. See, we, we tend to not say there's no such thing as sin, but instead we tend to say, well, there is such a thing as sin, but I, I've received Jesus. I, when I was eight, I said a prayer. I went to church. I signed a slip. My Sunday school teacher, she prayed with me. Hebrews 10, 26-27 says, For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. If we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment. You see, one of the problems in the world today is that too many people either don't believe in hell and therefore think they have nothing to worry about, or they believe in hell and are convinced that there's no way they're going there. Just this past week, a politician running for president, I'm a Christian, I'm proud to be a Christian. Hmm. Probably believes in hell. Probably believes it's not going there. And I don't know about that individual's heart and what their belief is, but I do know that too many people in the world believe in hell, but are convinced they're not going there, and it's for all the wrong reasons. Not because of the Gospel. Not because of Jesus. By the way, the same person said, I, I, I don't need to be forgiven. I've never needed to be forgiven. Not because of the Gospel do they believe they're not going to hell, but because they believe that sin doesn't bring about judgment. So Paul says, do not be deceived. This is too important of an, issue, of an issue to be wrong. He goes on to give them a list of sins that God will indeed judge. Now it's extremely important to note that this list in this text is not exhaustive. Paul's dealing with lawsuits before and he says, why are you bringing these lawsuits to unbelievers? Don't you recognize that these are the unbelievers that are involved in these things that they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God? But it's not an exhaustive list. Instead, it's indicative of the types of sins that were prevalent in the culture in Corinth. And I would agree are prevalent in our culture today. He says, God will indeed judge fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, the effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, the covetous, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. So when we come to a list like this, it's real easy Real easy to zoom in on the sins we don't personally struggle with. It would be real easy to make this message all about the effeminate or homosexuals. 
to make it only about those things and puff ourselves up with pride and say, well, we're not like them. However, the exact opposite of that is what Paul is doing with this list. He's not singling out two or one or two or two or three of these sins as gross or extreme, but instead lumping together homosexuality with reviling, which is speaking about others in a harmful way. Just a year ago, we uh, had a fireside chat here at Harmony Bible Church. And uh, we, I asked, what are some of the strengths, what are the weaknesses of the church? What, and one of the, one of the weaknesses that was brought to me that I was told has been in this church is gossip. Speaking about others in a harmful way. So we cannot come to this text and say, Amen. Amen. Those homosexuals and fornicators and drunkards, they're going to be judged. Without also saying that if we destroy one another with our tongues, that too will bring about the judgment of God. So with that in mind, let's consider the list. Let's consider this, each of these terms on this list individually. Fornicators refers in general terms to the sexually immoral. The world we live in is sexually immoral. It does not follow the standards God sets forth in His Word. The church that lives in the world has become sexually immoral. Pornography is a huge problem among men, among women, among children. It's a problem in the world. It's a problem in the church. You watch TV, primetime TV, and fornication, sexual immorality is heralded as good. Something to be desired. He goes on, he says, idolaters. Those are those who violate the first and second commandments and worship false gods. And we think, well, I don't have a statue of Buddha. I'm not bowing down. I'm not, you know, worshiping this false god. Well, I tell you, I've had plenty of false gods in my life, and I still sometimes have idols in my heart that I need to constantly, constantly put down, set aside, and seek God. I'll, I'll confess, one of my idols has always been a, 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 a good marriage is an idol. Well-behaved children is an idol. A successful business, a successful career. Is an, there's all kinds of idols. And you know what? God does not like to bow down to my idols. God's not, God's not impressed when I say, you know, bow down to this idol. He will not do it. He goes on, adulterers refers specifically to those who are married but have sex outside of marriage. Effeminate, I need to be careful in how I approach this. This is a very graphic word. If you want to know more, I'd encourage you to look this up. But it refers, uh, sometimes used to refer to men who dressed in, dress in soft clothing. The idea is of a male prostitute or a man who takes on the role of a female. But it can also be applied to anyone who dresses like or acts like or presumes themselves to be like, to be in a position of someone of the opposite sex. We're at the hotel this week and uh, we were eating breakfast. You could tell Kim was upset and... Um, had asked what was going on, and she said, the, that woman over there, um, I just need to pray for her. 
And there was a, a woman who had left, didn't notice. I thought there was a businessman sitting there. And it was a woman who was dressed as a man. And that's really the gist of this term here. Homosexuals is next on the list. Those who engage in sexual activity with someone of the same sex. The covetousness, those who greedily desire that which belongs to someone else. Those who want more and more and more. The thieves, those who steal, those who who go beyond coveting and actually take those possessions for themselves. Drunkards, one who habitually drinks too much wine or too much alcohol. And then revilers, those uh, who engage in slander, as I mentioned, those who harm one another with their words, and swindlers, those who steal from another person by deception or trickery. And I read off that list and bring our attention to this list, not to hold our lives up to it and say, well, I'm glad I'm none of these. The point of that list is not to look at it and say, well, fornicator, idolater, adulterer, effeminate, homosexuals, covetous, thief, drunkard, I'm glad I'm none of those. Right? If we do that, we've forgotten the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. In Luke 18, verses 9-14, through 14, we read, And he also, Jesus, told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, sound familiar? Or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, we are called to humble ourselves and recognize our sin. Sometimes we're too busy looking at the world and pointing to all the things that are wrong with them. We need to look to our own lives. You see, the point is that no one can say they are without sin. Scripture plainly teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's why Romans 5, 6-8 says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. You see, this list is you. This list is me. The unrighteous, those who do these things, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. They're separated from God. But then Romans 5, verse 6, while we're helpless, we're unable to do it, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, that's the Gospel. The Gospel is, Christ died for you while you were yet a sinner. He took the punishment that you deserved so that you might live eternally with Him. You see, and we're called and to repent of our sin, to trust in Christ, to live for Christ, to follow Him not only as Savior, but also as Lord of our lives. Because He died in our stead. 
And He was raised on that third day. And we cannot forget that He was raised defeating death and sin and suffering so that we might live. So, having seen the first point in our sermon outline, number one, the way of the unregenerate, namely that those who are not born again live lives marked by fornication, idolatry, adultery, cross-dressing, homosexuality, stealing, covetousness, drunkenness, slander, and swindling, and a whole host of other sins. That's the way of the unregenerate. Now let's consider the second point in our sermon outline. Number two, the transformed life. The transformed life. You see, though Scripture does declare that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that Christ took the punishment that we deserve, that, however, is not a justification to continue in sin. Paul continues where we left off in Romans 5, where we just read in Romans 5, by asking in Romans 6, verses 1 through 2, what shall we say then? He presents the gospel and says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? See, just as the unregenerate, the not transformed, live unregenerate lives, so the transformed person must live a transformed life. Look at verse 11 in our text, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. Paul says, Such were some of you. We talked in Sunday school, Bill mentioned one of my favorite words in all of Scripture is but, right? But God, but God, but God. And uh, Paul uses the term but three times here. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. See, this is the way you were. You were washed though. You were born again. You were made new. Paul obviously has a, a clear picture of baptism here. But not baptism as in something that happens inside this tank with water, but instead a spiritual rebirth. You're made new. A man must be born not just of water, but he must be born of both water and spirit. He must be made new. He says, and you were. You were washed. He says, and you were sanctified. You were set apart. You were made holy. You were set apart from sin and set apart to God. You were sanctified. And then he says, and you were justified. You were made positionally right with God. That you were in right standing, right relationship with God. You were declared righteous. And he says, all of this was done in the name of Jesus Christ. All of this was done in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the Spirit of our God. God did this for you. You were these things, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. You see, Paul once again reminds them of the Gospel. He doesn't say, come on Corinthians, you need to clean up your act. Because if you don't, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. He doesn't say, you know, you really need to smarten up. Because if this continues, kingdom of God, it ain't coming to you. That's not the gospel. That's humanism. Instead, he says, if you are indeed believers, if you've been born again, you're a new creature in Christ. He says, you're no longer slaves to sin. 
but you're slaves to righteousness. You've been made right with God. Do not be deceived into worldly thinking. Do not be deceived into thinking that you're without sin or be deceived into thinking that there's no penalty for sin. So Paul's issuing a warning here. He's telling the Corinthians that they cannot continue in unrepentant sin thinking that it's okay. Look back at Matthew 25. We looked at that already, Matthew 25, and we read verses 31 through 34. But I want to continue from there. I'll start at verse 31. We read this. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But notice that he continues on. And starting at verse 35, he says this, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them you did it to me. Then, verse 41, he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves will also answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You see, I read that passage to underscore the point that our actions do not convert us. But genuine conversion produces action. Our holiness does not save us. But us being saved produces in us a holiness. Or as James says it, faith without works is dead. Show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Or Ephesians 8, 9-10. It's by grace you're saved, not by... It's by grace you're saved through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. But... But you are God's workmanship. You're created, you're created for good works. You see, our actions don't convert us, but genuine conversion produces action. Paul's warning them, and he's saying, Corinthians, make sure your faith is alive. Make sure your faith is alive. If you're living in these things, then you need to be careful. You need to be careful that your faith is real. Don't be deceived into thinking that you're alive if you're dead. And if you're alive, don't be deceived into thinking that you can live like the unregenerate. Because you can't. 
So Paul's issuing a warning, but he's also issuing encouragement. He wants the Corinthians who have truly tasted salvation to rejoice, knowing that they have been made new. You see, he was reminding them that Jesus took the penalty that they deserved, and he wants them to live a life worthy of the calling they have received, to live a life that recognizes their freedom from sin and seeks to honor him in all that they say and do. Just as we saw earlier in Ephesians 5, 5 and 6, that Paul said, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It's also important that we continue on and read verses 7-10. through Verses 7-10 through of Ephesians 5 says this, Therefore, in light of this fact, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. You see, we don't do it perfectly. This message is not, you've committed adultery, there's no hope for you. This message is not, well, I think one time you had an idol. There's no hope for you. This message is not, you know, I saw you steal that thing that time. There's no hope for you. Paul's point is, you cannot continue living that lifestyle and think you're alive. Instead, that because you have been made alive, you must no longer live that lifestyle. Paul's message to the Corinthian believers is live out who you have been made to be in Christ. Remember the Gospel and live in light of it. As a follower of Jesus, you are no longer fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, or swindlers. You have been made new in Christ. You've been justified by Christ. You've been set apart from sin and set apart to Christ. Therefore, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's Paul's point. So just to review, number one, the way of the unregenerate, that those who are not born again live lives that are marked by these things. Fornication, idolatry, adultery, cross-dressing, homosexuality, stealing, covetousness, drunkenness, slander, swindling. And then point number two, the transformed life, contrasting that with the transformed life. That those who have been born again are no longer what they once were. They've been justified. They've been made new, born again. They've been sanctified. They've been washed. You see, he says, you've been made new, you've been set apart, and you've been made positionally right with God. You've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. And therefore, They're no longer subject to a life of slavery, of sin and death. He says, if you have lived the transformed life, if you have been transformed, you're no longer subject to slavery. Don't submit to that yoke of slavery any longer. So the question is, how do we at Harmony Bible Church, both individually and corporately, specifically apply all of this to our lives? Well, number one, I believe we must examine ourselves. We must examine our lives. Paul ends his 
Some of his final words to the Corinthian believers in 2 Corinthians are, test yourselves. Examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. We must examine ourselves. Examine our lives. Seek God's wisdom and not be fools. We must examine our doctrine and make sure our doctrine is shaping our lives, not our lives shaping our doctrine. We must be careful to look at our lives in light of Scripture. Number two, we must call each other to repentance and to a life that honors Jesus. I need that. You need that. We need to build each other up. We need to spur each other on in the faith. We must make sure that we are living a life worthy of the calling we have received as Christ's bride. Number three, we must remind each other of the gospel. Paul sees all the problems in Corinth, and Paul spends most of his time, all of his time, pointing back to the gospel again and again and again. Paul understands. He doesn't say, I'm going to come in there and I'm going to tell you right now, you need to clean your act up. Instead, he points to Jesus and says, look at what Christ did for you. Look at, look at the gospel. Don't forget, you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. In the same way, we need to remind each other of the gospel. In just a few chapters, or uh, it's actually 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, uh, verse 3, Paul says, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. He says, I'm afraid that, just like the serpent deceived Eve, that you're going to be led astray from the simplicity of the gospel message. Don't be led astray. Don't get caught up into thinking that somehow you need to live a life in your own strength that, that does not do these things, that, that can check off each of these things on this list. Do not think that you can somehow in your own strength live up to that list and do not think that that list doesn't apply to you either. Instead, remind each other of the Gospel, what Christ has done for you, and the full Gospel, the whole Gospel, that we need to therefore battle sin in our lives so that we might live lives that honor Him as our Lord. And then number four, we need to boldly proclaim the Gospel. We need to boldly proclaim the whole gospel. That includes saying to a world, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor, covetous, nor, nor drunkards, or all those things. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. But we better follow with, and such was I. Such was I with tears in our eyes. We do not come to the world and the Gospel is not repent for neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers nor homosexuals like you will inherit the kingdom of God. Be like me. That is not the Gospel. We need to come to a world with tears in our eyes. We need to love the people around us. We need to love the person at the hotel lobby, the woman who's dressed like a man because she's confused about who she is and doesn't know who she's called to be in Christ. We need to love the homosexual couple that lives down the street or across the street 
We need to be bold in saying, do not be deceived. We also need to be bold in saying, such were I. That my sin of cutting down others with my words is no better, no more righteous than your sin of dressing like someone of the opposite sex. We need to boldly proclaim the true gospel. This is why Jesus died. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were made new, you were sanctified, you were made holy, you were set apart to Christ, and you were justified, you were declared righteous in His name. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your mercy. God, help us to be warned. Help us to heed the warning of this passage. Help us to examine ourselves to make sure we truly are alive in You. God, help us to look to You with rejoicing, knowing that though we were dead, that You made us alive, You made us new, You set us apart for service to You, that as Your followers, You have declared us righteous. And that now we can live in light of those truths. God, help us to not return to our old lives of wickedness or deceit, but instead bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Help us to live lives that are the Galatians, fruit of the Spirit kind of lives. Lives that show that You are in us, that You're working through us. God, help us to rely fully on You. Help us to hold each other accountable to these things. Help us to remember the Gospel to preach the gospel to ourselves, to apply the gospel to every situation of our lives, and then to boldly proclaim the gospel, to love the world around us, not just with a judgmental eye that says, none of you will inherit the kingdom of God, but instead, a loving word that says, come, inherit the kingdom of God a heart that cries out saying, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Come, inherit the kingdom of God. God, give us boldness. Give us grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Jason Polly, pastor of Harmony Bible Church in South Thomaston, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others. And we invite you to connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. God bless you, and to God be the glory.